Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And let's read the word of God together. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. May God bless the reading and the teaching of his word this morning and give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. The title of our sermon this morning is Jesus and the Most Important Commandment of All. And this is a part one. The more I studied, the more I recognized I could not do justice to this entire passage as Jesus breaks down and and defines for us the most important commandments of the law. So we're going to be taking a look at Jesus and the most important commandment of all, part one. Scholars and philosophers have come to agreement that our worldview, the way that you individually see the world, the way that you make sense of the world, what determines how you live and the values that you have, all come down to just a handful of questions and how you answer them. These are often called life's great questions, life's big questions. If you want to Google it, you can go ahead and and Google life's big questions. And about the same handful of questions will always come up. It's irregardless of culture, irregardless of age, whether you are rich, whether you are poor, whether we are talking about the Stone Age, or whether we're talking about some life far away in the future, the same questions always hold and always give meaning. Those questions are simply these. Here's my attempt at the phrasing them in the simplest way possible. Is there a God? It's basically a question of beginnings or existence. Is there a God? What is he like? What is my purpose? This is a question of meaning. Basically, how should I live? Is there something I should live for? What should define what gives me value? Is there a right and wrong? 
If there is, who makes the rules? One country versus the next? You? Me? Does it change over time from one culture to the next? What happens when we die? Is there any hope after this life? Anything to give us hope in the middle of suffering or persecution? Anything to give us hope in death? And maybe we can add a fifth, and I think this is a question that we always see in many different ways, but what's wrong with our world and what is the solution? You often hear this question in terms of why is there so much suffering? Or you hear a version of this, if God is loving, then why is there so much wrong? The beauty of studying Jesus and his life and his teachings is that Jesus answers every single one of life's big questions. And this morning, we come to one of these big questions. It's not phrased like we have it here, what is my purpose or what gives my life meaning, but there's a scribe that asked Jesus a question, and his exact wording was, what is the most important commandment? And so this morning, we are going to examine that Jesus answers all of life's great questions, but very specifically this morning, one of the world's great questions comes to the feet of the world's greatest teacher. And when that happens, we get the authoritative, definitive answer on this question. Jesus is going to give us an answer that we can build our entire lives on. And so this morning, as we study this passage in front of us, you're going to be able to walk away, being able to answer for yourself, what is the most important commandment of all? Another simple way to phrase that is, how should I live? What is the purpose of my life? What should give meaning to my life? What should define my life? What is the foundation? All of those are answered by this question. Now, our simple little outline for this morning, we're going to take a look at in verse 28. Now, I told you we're not going to cover the whole passage. We're going to specifically limit our focus to verses 28 through 30 this morning. But we have read the entire passage. We have seen the scribe come up to Jesus, and you've seen how Jesus answered. So we're going to now focus on this first half of the story. And in verse 28, we have the great debate. In verses 29 and 30, we have what we call the great command. We want to end our time this morning by looking at how is River of Life equipping you to respond to the great command. Three parts to our study today. The great debate, verse 28. The great command, verses 29 and 30. And lastly, we're going to look at practically how is River of Life equipping you to respond to the great command. Okay? And once again, your walkaway truth once you leave this morning, not because of my wisdom, not because of uh, the, the wonders of River of Life, but because we have come to Jesus, we are reading his answers to life's biggest questions, you should walk away knowing, confidently knowing, what is most important in life. 
Every single person should walk away. What is, no, what is the center? What is the foundation that life is built on? And you'll be able to answer that question. You'll be given three tools to be able to pursue that today. So let's look at the great debate. This is verse 28. Verse 28 says again, it says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is most important of all? Let me stop right here so that some of those of you who are here for the first time maybe know some of the context. This passage we have in front of us this morning is uh, simply, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, we've been preaching each week, verse after verse, understanding Jesus' life, his teachings, his ministry, and then this morning as you have joined us, there's a context to what's been taking place. One, we've been faithfully going through the scriptures, verse after verse. But what you may have missed is that last week, this is, uh, and the weeks preceding, this is the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. He's going to celebrate a festival called the Passover with his disciples. And Jesus has come to the temple. And Jesus has, uh, in his time in Jerusalem, first, he, he cleaned or cleansed the temple. Basically, there was a marketplace going on. And Jesus came, he saw what was taking place in the temple, and he began to clean up the improper activities that were going around worship. The next day, Jesus comes back and he's challenged by the leaders to say, who gave you the authority to do that? And it leads to a debate. And as we come to our passage today, Jesus' enemies have kind of circled their wagons and all decided to partner together. Last week, we took a look at how the Pharisees and the Herodians brought questions to Jesus. Then we looked at how the Sadducees brought questions to Jesus. And this account is in the same uh, storyline. Is that Jesus' opponents are bringing questions to him. And the reason they're bringing questions, very difficult questions, is they want to trap him. They want to catch him in teaching something incorrectly so that they can get rid of Jesus. But the story this Sunday has a twist. Because if you didn't notice in reading this, this particular scribe actually had an honest question, a genuine question from the heart. And so we see that it tells us that he's one of the scribes. Now we know that the scribes, along with the other opponents of Jesus, had come together. If we look at Matthew, Matthew, uh, there's, there's four different gospels or four different stories of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When Matthew tells this story, he tells us very specifically, this gentleman isn't just a scribe, he's also a Pharisee. And so one of Jesus' opponents hears him answer from last week, the Herodians and the Pharisees, a question about tax. Should we pay tax to the government? They also, then the Sadducees came and had a very difficult, complex question about the resurrection. Jesus has answered both of those questions, and in fact, he's answered them so well, this gentleman sees and is prompted to ask a question that comes to his mind. He sees how well Jesus answers the questions. And this is where we, we enter what we call this great debate. Now, 
The reason I called this section the Great Debate was because there actually was at this time a great debate about which of the commands was actually most important. If you know anything about the Old Testament or if you've done any reading, the rabbis, the scribes, those who taught the law, recognized there was actually 613 individual statutes or commands in the law. 613. 365 of those commands were negative commands, or as in don't do. 248 of those commands were things to do. And given the number of regulations, 613, you could see and understand that when the scribes and when the teachers of the law got together, one of the great debates they had was which of these is the most important. And so they would have these conversations. And so when this scribe comes to Jesus and recognizes the fact that he's a great teacher and that he simply teaches truth no matter what it costs him, that he will always tell you what is true, this scribe gets an idea. Ask this guy the question. See what he responds. Now, the scribes and the teachers of the law had many different ways that they had thought about giving an answer to this. Some of them differentiated between what they called the heavy or the great commands versus the light or the little. So they began to just say, okay, I think there's two classes. We think there's some, some weightier commands, and we think there's some that are, are not quite as important. That was one attempt, to just begin to divide them into, here's the heavier things, here's the not as important things. They tried to formulate great principles from which they can, if they can reduce the law, those 613 individual commands, is there one guiding principle? There's a famous example. I told you last week when we, we talk about the Pharisees that there's three camps. There's, uh, there's those um, under Gamaliel. There's those under Hillel. There were those under Shammai. Basically, we had conservative, we had liberal, and we had more center. There's a famous story of somebody who was a non-Jew or a proselyte or or somebody that they uh, were trying to make a convert of of Judaism. He stood in front of Hillel, and he was a Gentile, and he stood on one foot and he says, I'll become a Jew. I'll become a proselyte. If you can tell me why I'm standing on one foot, summarize the law. And if you can't summarize those 613 commands in the time that I have to stand on one foot before I lose balance, he says, I won't become a believer. It's too complicated, too complex. He says, if you, can, if you can do it, maybe your religion, maybe these rules have merit. And so Hillel did summarize in a very quick way. He says, what you hate for yourself, do not do to your neighbor. He said the whole law, the rest of 
of the scriptures are simply a commentary on this. And he says, go and learn. Basically, he says, I won the argument. Now you go learn. This is how Hillel answered. And so basically, he took a look. He says, what you hate, what you don't want done to you, don't do to others. This was Hillel's best attempt at summarizing the law. And now we're going to see Jesus' response. Now, before we go on to looking at the great command, I just want to stop and mention one thing. One of the things that we see is when people come to Jesus, Jesus is like the great magnet of men. This particular person is a Pharisee. And by the way, so if you haven't caught on as we've been reading Mark, there aren't too many who are Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, or leaders of the people who didn't reject or become enemies of Jesus. It's very interesting that this man hears Jesus, and rather than being repelled, he's drawn to Jesus. I just simply want to take the time to recognize that there are people who stepped out from among their brothers in arms to actually follow or to be open to hear Jesus' message. When we often, so often hear of only the scribes or the Pharisees, we only and almost always think of a uniform group who rejected Jesus. There's not many examples, but I just want to show you one. Just to encourage you, that even from Jesus' most ardent opponents, there are some who had ears to hear. Some who are willing to what we call, we're at River of Life, we'll just call it swim upstream. Some who marched to the beat of a different drummer. Some who weren't willing to go along with what the rest of their colleagues believed. And this one man is, is one of those examples. Another example from John 3 was Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night? And so I just want to plant a seed and that even in, and the reason I say this, folks, you know and I know, how many times have you shared the gospel and how many times have you recognized this person or this group of people has no interest whatsoever? But in the middle of all this rejection, in the middle of Jesus' opponents literally gunning for his life, aiming for his life, here's one guy who steps out and hears Jesus' answers, and his heart is moved to want to know more. And this is why Jesus is like a great magnet. If you take a magnet, what a magnet will do, it will repel everything whose magnetic charge is opposite, and it draws to it all of those who, uh, whose magnetic charge uh, is willing to receive. This is what a magnet does. A magnet, there's only two responses to a magnet. A magnet either repels or it draws. And the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of, of what he's teaching here, is that there's one guy, as Jesus is teaching, how many no's was Jesus getting? I don't know how many were in that crowd. I don't know how many were opponents. But I find it fascinating. I just want to stop and I just want to point out the hope of sharing the gospel truth, the hope of sharing the truth. How many were rejected? I think we probably should stop counting. How many were received? 
We can trust God to be working that some will respond. This is the grace gospel magnet. It's the gospel that does the work and people receive or respond to Jesus. Either they are repelled from him and continue on as his enemies or they are drawn to him like this man. He sees, I don't know what about this man, but I do know he is answering, he's answering honestly. And if your life is honestly about answers, about what is true, then you will have a very hard time rejecting Jesus. Because he simply tells the truth. So let's move on. I just wanted to stop and I wanted to point that out because I think it's so critical to understand in a sea of rejection, there is one guy who steps forward with an honest question because he recognizes how Jesus is teaching Let's look at this great command. We're going to look at Jesus' answer. In verse 29, it says, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The first thing I want to share with you is that Jesus didn't make up this answer on the spot. Jesus wasn't summarizing the law. He wasn't taking all the law in and giving you, here's my summary of what the law says. Jesus is very specifically quoting from the Old Testament. This quote is, for if you are a Jew, is the most well-known verse in the Old Testament. It's called the Shema. And that simply means hear or listen. That's the very first word where it says, Hear, O Israel. Shema means hear or listen. And this is from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And we're going to read a little bit larger passage. Because this verse is the central confession of the Jewish identity. This verse is what it meant to be in relationship with God. For Jews, they would recite this verse, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, every morning and every evening. This is literally how a Jew would begin and end his day. So let's read Deuteronomy 6, and now I've expanded so that you get a little context. Deuteronomy 6, chapter, uh, verse 1, it says this. Now this is the commandment the statues and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Me is meaning Moses. That you may do them in the land which you are going over. What land? The land that land is the promised land. To possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commands which I command you all the days of your life. And that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it might go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And here is the quote from Jesus, from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall walk 
or you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. This was God's command to His people Israel. And you see how significant this quote is. You see how it is a relationship-defining verse. It defines how God's people are to relate to Him. And I don't know if you saw just the beauty of passing that on to future generations. Literally, this is what defined God's people, and it's what defined their legacy. That to be called to know God was to teach your children and to raise them up to know God as well. To bring them up in God's promises. To bring them up to know God and His character. And so this is the verse that Jesus quotes. It's from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5. Now, I want to share just some important background information so that that verse isn't understood with no context. Deuteronomy 6 comes after what we call the Exodus. The Exodus, so as you sit here today, I don't know how much you know of the Scriptures or what you uh, might know and understand, so let me just unpack when I say the Exodus, what that means. And I'll, I'll, I'll allow you to do further research, or you can even talk to myself, to Alex, or any of our leaders, or talk to your river group leader to know more. But the Exodus simply was the time when God called his people out of slavery in the house of Egypt. He called them to himself. He covenanted with them to be their God. He gave them his law. You know, when we think of the Ten Commandments, right? When, when were those given? The Ten Commandments were given after God called Israel out of Egypt to know him, to worship him. He gives them his commands. And when we come to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is, is speaking of the fact that God has moved to make Israel his people and to be their God, to love them and to do good to them, to give them a good land, to give them the promised land. And so everything that, that we talk about in Deuteronomy 6 of loving God is simply a response to the God who first made, uh, made a move to love them and to call those people his own. If you don't understand that context, then what we're talking about today simply won't make as much sense as it could. We're, we're only talking about one side of the relationship. You need to know that this command that we see to love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and all of our might is simply a response. And if you don't know the context, the, the defining act of the entire Old Testament is the Exodus. It's what we call the first of Passover, where God is, is going to, uh, and that's another thing that's loaded. You'll need to research what that is. The Passover was God's provision to deliver his people from Egypt, where God uh, had a, a struck Egypt and his people with a curse, that he would take the firstborn son. And God made provision that if you take the life of a lamb and you paint the blood on those doorposts, literally, the angel of death would pass over and all of those who placed their faith in God for that provision 
Their son was spared. I don't have the time to go deep into that, but I just want you to know, there's a, the Passover and the Exodus factor into this. Now that might seem complicated, that might seem going deep. Occasionally, we need to get out of the kiddie pool and just go a little bit deeper and expose to some deeper things that are significant, that are actually the foundations of your faith. So that is the background. And in fact, in Exodus 22 through 3, I'll just say this. In the, in the relationship of God with Israel, over and over and over again, what comes back, uh, or, or how God talks about the relationship, he says this, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and then he gives commands, you shall have no other gods before me, or he goes to the Ten Commands, that God is always talking to his people based upon his love for them, which freed them from slavery, bought them back to him, and then God committed himself to do them good. I will be your God and you will be my people. All right? I'm just going to press pause there. I'm going to look around and just see. Do we understand, maybe not to the depths, but do you understand the context? It's critical for you. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, I'm not really sure, this is where I would invite you. Don't just go home and not know and understand. Talk to those in this church or those who are more mature in their faith or your river group leader. These are foundational things that you need to understand. I can't unpack all of it now. I just will introduce it. Now, I've told you that Jesus' quote of what's most important comes from Deuteronomy 6. I've given you a little background to understanding that story. Now, let's just get practical. Let's talk about what does it mean. What does it mean when the scriptures tell us or the command tells us to love God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. Is Jesus saying four things? Do we unpack all four of those? Here's the simple answer. The scriptures are not trying to speak of four different ways that you're called to love God, but it's trying to say one thing in each of those. And that one thing that the scripture is calling us to is to love God with the totality of our being. To give everything you have to God and to hold nothing back. Another way of saying it is simply to devote yourself to God completely. That you would leave no, or you have no reservations, that you would have no regrets, that you would give yourself to God completely. I think the best way that I've seen in my research to describe this is this command is to love God with all that you are and with all that you have. Love God with all that you are and all that you have. One of the questions that we might ask as we think about this, and this is where I gave you that context of, of why, why love God? Is it strange? Do you have to ever think it's strange that God would command us to love Him? Isn't that kind of... Like, Sam, would you command your wife to love you? Do, you? do you think that's the right way to do things, right? Have you, there, there are people that will be pushing back on this and think that's a rather self-serving command. Why do you believe in a God that would command you to love? Because isn't, isn't love the very definition of love? 
Not a response to a command? Any minds out there trying to think and process? So why would we love God totally and completely? If that's what it looks like to love God with all of our heart and mind and strength and soul, why would God call us to love Him completely? Well, the answer is that foundation, that context I just gave you of the Exodus. And if we bring it to New Testament, the answer is Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, explain and unpack that. When God made a covenant with Israel in the Old Testament, God gave himself completely and without reservation, with all that he is, with all that he, uh, he has and is able to do on our behalf, God gave himself without reservations to be completely faithful to Israel. That's the story of the Exodus. That's the story of what we call the Old Covenant with God. When we come to the New Covenant, we're still in Mark. We haven't seen or read about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We spoke about it at Easter. But if we were to fast forward to the New Covenant... The new covenant is built upon Jesus' love for us where he would die for us while we were yet sinners so that he might purchase us and he might free us from our sins and, and give us uh, the, the uh, assurance of heaven. When? All when? When we did not yet love him. In the Exodus And in the cross, we see two examples of God making the first move to love us. And this is why God demands or commands that we would be completely to Him. God has... Think about this and maybe the best illustration. Let's, Let's look at illustration. The best illustration of this is the marriage covenant. I, I can't give you a better illustration than Scripture gives itself. Over and over again, Scripture compares... Israel's relationship with God and our relationship to Christ to a husband and a wife, a bride and a groom. And what happens in that marriage is love. And love compels us to faithfully commit to the person in front of us. Think about this. You guys have all been to a wedding. At a wedding and at a ceremony, there's something that will happen. And uh, I'm, different cultures will have different types of wedding. And, and I know my American context, but I do know that the central part of a wedding is that two people will stand face to face and they will make covenant promise to, to each other, not because they have to, but because they want to, out of love. And the most natural response to Receiving love is to want to return that love. It's always the way it works. Has, has somebody ever done something, and we're not even talking about marriage, has someone ever done something for you that was just so surprising and so kind that you thought, I can't believe how kind that was. What kind of motivation did that give you? It, without exception, When somebody blesses you, surprises you, does something to serve you, your heart moves towards not only receiving that, praising that, 
but wanting to return and do something either kind to them or to somebody else. Without exception, this is how relationships work. That when we experience love, we're motivated to want to share or to return it. It's the most natural, normal, organic way of relating to people. And so when God has come to the altar, when we look at the story of Exodus, or when we talk about what Jesus has done, literally, God has come to the altar, and He's offered Himself, all of Himself, He's laid everything down and said, I, everything I have is yours. I have given you all that I can in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you lack. I can't give you a greater blessing than to take your sins, to uh, give you eternal life, and to give you myself, and to, to commit all that I am for your good. Now, the normal and natural response, if that happened to us, and that was factual. It happened in the Exodus and it happens with Christ is that we in turn of seeing God's great love for us would be motivated, would be compelled to say everything that I have, God, I want to love you in the same way that you love, love me. Do you know the transforming power of being loved and how that helps define your life and how that gives you motivation? When we're, we're celebrating uh, mothers today. It's, a, it's a, uh, a time where we look at the, the beautiful part of being married. And one of the, the joys I have, as I look at Des, for those of you who've experienced uh, or are in a marriage, or those of you who have seen your parents relate, there's nothing more beautiful than seeing people love one another, stay faithful to each other, and are committed to each other's good. It's the most beautiful gift we see in all of creation. The ability to know love, the ability to give love. Nothing rises higher than that. Those who, who don't feel loved, I will show you the, the cascading effects of what happens when a child is not loved in his home. And you can see its disastrous effects on our society, without a doubt. I will show you also the amazing transforming power of what love can do to begin to transform somebody's life. And so when we come to this great commandment and what it is uh, that God has called us, you have to understand God is simply not calling us in a vacuum and commanding us to love Him. God has given all of himself. He's already standing at the altar. He's already said, everything I have, everything I can give, I have laid out all that I can do in Jesus Christ. And it is yours. And so the natural response to that would to be receive that love that God has initiated and to return that love. That is why we seek to love God completely, totally, no reservations, nothing held back. And so when God commands us, He says, what is the most important command? The most important command is to love God with all of our heart, mind, strength, soul. What's the simple summary of that? Everything you have, all that you are, all that you can give, is the way that God has designed you to relate to Him. Now, I just want to say, uh, I mentioned the marriage illustration. Let me make two points here. In marriage, loving your spouse is not a duty, it's delight. In your relationship with God, 
Loving your spouse is not a duty. Duty is command. I already told you. When we talk about love, love is not about commands. It's not about duties. It's not about obligation. You try that with your spouse or your, or your family or anybody else. Next time you go to work, take whatever you have, whatever project, whatever report, throw it on your, your, your boss's desk. Be like, here you go. I was obligated to do it. I had no joy. I didn't want to do it, but you told me to do it. How far will you go in a job where everything is obligation? Well, not very far. How far will you go in a marriage where everything is obligation? Not very far. I need you to understand that the command to love is delight, not duty. I also just want you to recognize, I mentioned this earlier, it is natural to respond to love with love. All right. I mentioned already that God is calling us and Jesus is calling us to rules, or excuse me, not to rules, but relationship. The last thing I want to mention here is simply that what you love is the most important thing about you. When you talk about what you worship, or, or what you love, and when we talk about worship, worship is another, in a sense, another word for love. I didn't even think about this, but our catechism today, idols. Uh, idols are what we worship whether it's the wooden idol that uh, we see in the Old Testament or whether it's the modern idols of influence and fame. I, I, I mean, Instagram, Facebook, all of these ways, how many followers are all these idols that really rule our lives and our happiness? Uh, we, we have different idols. But I simply want to mention, as we talk about this command to love God, that what you love is the most important thing about you. And the reason it's the most important thing about you is because what you love literally shapes who you are. What you love will determine what you value. What you love will determine how you prioritize your time. What you love will determine where you spend your funds. What you love will determine your self-esteem and your identity of where you, where, what things are actually what give, make you feel good about yourself. Where is that connected? By what you love. Now, I want to come full circle. I told you as we were beginning that today you'd walk away confidently knowing exactly what is most important. And we said we want to leave giving you three action steps. So I don't want you just to know the fact that Jesus answers one of the world's greatest questions. What is the most important command? With Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. You already know that, right? Everybody has that head knowledge? You're probably thinking, I've heard you say it 35 times. Good. We got the head knowledge part, right? Step one, checked off. If I walk out of here and you know nothing, if you know one thing, I know, no matter what culture, no matter what age, rich, poor, German, American, Australian, African, South African, I don't care where you come from. Everybody has the same answer. Most important command in all of life is to love God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. Love God with all of you that you are. Now, we need to move from knowledge to practical. How can we do that? Well, I want to share with you just some very specific things, some resources, but also let's reduce our sermon today to three Peas. How do you respond to the great commandment today? I think we've got it checked off. You know how Jesus answered the question. 
So how do you respond? I'm not talking about the audience in the, the passage in Mark. I'm talking about you, where you're sitting this morning. How do you respond, or how can you love God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul? Three things. One, pursue. And as I share each of these, I'm just going to introduce you to some of the resources that we have. Pursue. You will need to pursue loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength by intentionally spending time with God. There is no substitute. We have a little growth assessment here. You can find all of these online. Things that we've created at River of Life to help you. But there's no way around it. If I were to say, Sam, here's, I, I want you to have a healthy marriage. Folks, I could buy flowers, I could buy wardrobes, I could buy cars, I could buy houses. I could do everything for my wife, but nothing will substitute for me spending time with her. I need to know her and she needs to know me. That's what our love is built on. It's not built on the car or the house or the things or the vacations. One of the most important things you will do is learn to pursue God. Pursue God by spending time in His Word. Pursue God by spending time in prayer. This little growth assessment will help you just ask some simple questions. You can download this. You can get it, uh, go to our toolbox on River of Life. This just asks you questions, practical questions. For example, what is your overall habit and pattern of enjoying your relationship with God? Ask you what about your prayer life? What does that look like? Ask you about your Bible reading. How's that going? Do you have any intentional plan? Are, would you say, I'm spending time with God, or would you say, I'm in a season where that is really not a part of my normal pattern routine? Well, here's what we know from this, the Scriptures today. The first rule of life. Pursue God with all that you are. Here's one way we can help you. Another way is uh, our bear fruit plan. Now, some of, the, some of you are not as familiar with that. That is not on our website. But I'll tell you is, this is something we've been talking about with our discipleship groups. I talk about it with my guys. It is simply building your life on God's will. It's looking at what are my stewardships and how do I build my life. So the first thing is pursue. The second thing is prioritize. Here's the deal. In our mis- busy modern world, you can't do everything. Your schedule can't fit everything. You have limited time, you have limited resources, which means you will have to prioritize where you spend your time, with who you spend your time, and a part of that prioritizing is you're going to have to prioritize time with God. If you're going to pursue God, then you're going to have to prioritize it on your calendar. I know for me, I don't know about you, when people ask to meet, I have to go to my calendar, I have to figure out when do I have time, because it's nice to talk about meeting, But to actually get it done, there has to be something on the calendar. There has to be something in your plans. You're going to have to prioritize time with God. One resource that you maybe didn't even know, we actually talked about it today. Our covenant commitments are designed so that we just went through our covenant commitments to help you prioritize. Notice the foundation is relationship with God. It moves up to relationship with family, relationships in this church, relationships with your neighbors. This covenant commitments that we take are literally designed to help you prioritize what is most important. Where do you spend your most time? Personally alone with God? 
Secondly, in your families. Thirdly, in the church. Fourthly, with neighbors. All of those have a place and have a design. Our church covenant helps you walk through that. Lastly, my last P is simply this, to prune. If the first is to pursue, you're going to have to be intentional about making time for God. The second is to prioritize. You're going to have to prioritize your schedule of when, you're going to, when, when is it that you have the best time to spend with God. The last thing is you're going to have to prune. There's just no way around it. The Bible makes very clear there are dead branches on our life that you've you got to cut off. Right? And listen, you, you got some dead branches in how you spend your time and your hobbies. You got some dead branches with some relationships really you just need to get rid of. You got some dead branches with hobbies that you have that I would say, hey, they're not wrong, but if something's got to give somewhere. So here's what I know. If you want to open the tree up to grow fruit, you're going to have to prune some branches. Now, if you want to prune some branches, we also have, I don't have it on me, it's what our, it's called our put-off, put-on plan. Our put-off, put-on plan helps you identify areas or patterns that you have to get rid of in order to put on area or patterns that are after God's will. All right. Great commandment. You know what it means. You know how it should define your life. You know the three Ps. Here's my only question as we end. What is your first step? talked about pursuing, we talked about prioritizing, we talked about pruning. What is your first step? The resources are on the internet, it's in the toolbox. You have friends to run the journey with. There is not a single person in here who can't say, I just wish I had someone to walk alongside me the journey. That's why we're a church. You have brothers and sisters who should be running with you. What is your first step? When will you make it? That's the only two questions you've got to go and answer now. Let's pray and ask God to make the teaching and preaching of his word practical this morning to us. Father in heaven, you are good. You do good. And we're so thankful that you have loved us and called us to yourself. Help us make the steps of pursuing you, of prioritizing you, and of pruning the areas that are preventing growth. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.